All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Recording, recording, recording. Okay, so here is my question for you. Yes. What do you do at science camp? Well, what do you mean? Like, what what do you think makes science camp different than, like, regular camp? Well, you get to do a lot of experiments. Like, what sort of stuff was your favorite? A lot of things. Like, I think it's um, uh, inventions. Mm-hmm. And the week before this one was slime time. We made a lot of slime in chemistry. Mm-hmm. We before slime time was World War Dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Learned about dinosaurs. And the week before that was NASA Kids. Mm-hmm. Learned about space. And the first week of camp was Grossology. It was so gross. Grossology. Slime time. Roar, roar, dinosaur. Every week, a different theme. My six-year-old kid has been going to science camp this summer, and I have never seen him so darn happy. Duh! Do you think I'm going to have more fun than you today? He asks me every morning at drop-off. Yes, you little brat, of course you are. What adult wouldn't want to be concocting and creating all day long with nothing but the sheer joy of experimentation on the line? Well, in Brooklyn, naturally, there are some adults who have figured out how to do just that, but with some slightly more grown-up technology. I think it was clear that they did not want me storing bacteria in the house. It's New Tech City, WNYC's look at how technology is changing the way we live. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and this week we're talking experiments. Literal in-the-lab experiments, and experiments in innovating how we get around every day. I think one of the advantages of these kinds of apps is they remove the uncertainty that you face that a cab driver will pass you by because they're profiling you based on how you look. But first... It's kind of amazing that the technology for analyzing DNA has become so affordable that people can actually do it at home. Why do woodworking or crochet when you can analyze DNA, right? Well, some science hobbyists are coming together to put a DIY spin on biology at a community lab called GenSpace. Sounds weird and slightly dangerous? Yeah, well, here's the assessment from our reporter, Jessica Gould. Wilhelm Joyce Anderson holds a pipette full of liquid up to the light and squints. He's trying to break up some plant cells with a mixture of detergent and water. As a software engineer, he deals with pretty technical stuff. But he says this is way outside his element. And what are you doing? Right now, um, I'm trying to learn how to do this lab work. I actually have no idea what I'm doing. I'm, I'm a software guy, and oh, this is hardware. Anderson is one of about 15 people gathered for a class called Pizza and PCR. The goal is to sequence some DNA and then have a beer and a slice. Just a typical night at GenSpace. Where lay people and scientists alike can come and work on their pet biotechnology projects. 
Genspace co-founder Dan Grushkin says it all began about three years ago, when a few people were looking for a place to do experiments. At first, they met in his living room. They extracted DNA from strawberries and inserted genes into bacteria to make them glow green. But his roommates weren't thrilled with the idea. I think it was clear that they did not want me storing bacteria in the house, and I did not want to store bacteria in the house. I did not want to turn the house into a lab. So they found a more permanent spot on the seventh floor of an old office building in downtown Brooklyn. Members pay a fee to use the space, and there are classes that teach the basics of biotech to the general public. There's a big granite table for experiments and an industrial fridge full of bacteria, which begs a question: are, Is this safe? Everything we do here is vetted for safety. Grushkin says the lab is strictly biosafety level one, so people only work with organisms that are not pathogenic or harmful to humans. A board vets new members before they join, and GenSpace stays in touch with the FBI just in case something suspicious comes up. The benefits of having a garage biology or amateur biology movement grow, or that you get people thinking outside the box. Art Kaplan, a bioethicist at NYU, says GenSpace is part of a growing community of people who want to increase access to biotech. He says there are safety concerns since these informal labs don't have the same regulations and inspections as their corporate counterparts, but they can also lead to more creativity. They aren't bound by the accepted wisdom. They don't care what their elders say can and can't be done. They'll try things that are just unusual. Grushkin says the so-called biohacker movement is taking off because analyzing DNA is much cheaper than it used to be. He compares it to the computer revolution of the late '70s, back when people like Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were tinkering away in their garages. He hopes one day someone at GenSpace will launch a company or give birth to a new device we all can't live without. We'll all be doing it, just like we're all playing with our iPhones constantly. But for now, it's time to clear away the DNA and make room for dinner. A couple students wipe down the lab table while others bring in boxes of pizza. What do you got there? Pizza. Are you guys going to test it? No, we're going to need it. <laughs> During the break, Anderson, the software engineer, says he hasn't made any breakthroughs yet, but he's met interesting people and he's had a good time. I'm interested, curious.、Um, I want to learn. This is my first time here, but.、Uh... I'll definitely be back. That's what's nice about looking for the next big thing. It's never too late. For WNYC, I'm Jessica Gould. It's been the first summer that New Yorkers can e-hail a taxi. That is, they can use an app like Uber or Halo on their smartphone to get a cab. New York is home to the most taxis in the U.S., and as a New Yorker, I gotta say, so far I just don't get the appeal of these apps. Sure, they're easy, but why would I poke at my phone and wait when I can just lift my arm and yell, "Taxi!" So far, according to the numbers, most New Yorkers agree with me. During June, the first month these apps were allowed to be used, e-hailed trips made up less than one quarter of one percent of all yellow cab rides. The city says of the roughly 117,000 requests made through the apps, less than one fifth were successful, meaning that a driver and a rider eventually found each other and committed an act of transportation. So after this info came out, I tweeted about it, writing that old habits die hard for New Yorkers. And the woman who is sitting with me right now tweeted back, "Stacy, what did you say? Brown people disagree." 
Stacey Marie Ishmael is a product manager at a tech startup and an advocate for minorities and tech. And Stacey, why do you say that brown people disagree? I think one of the advantages of these kinds of apps is they remove the uncertainty that you face that a cab driver will pass you by because they're profiling you based on how you look, expecting that you will maybe want to go to the outer boroughs like Brooklyn or Queens or, you know, sort of more nefariously potentially be a criminal. A criminal. Has this, and and you feel like you've... I haven't, I've definitely experienced the you're out late and you're trying to get a a cab and you're the one with the strategic spot and you are getting passed by or you and your group of friends are getting passed by for sort of people who look less, less brown. (laughs) So despite the fact that you're in like in the right spot on the street with your hand raised and the taxi driver can see you. Very civilized fashion. Yep. And it's just not going to be me. And with these apps, they don't know what you look like and they can't base whether they pick you up or not on what you look like. Yeah. And actually, there was a really interesting tweet by another person I follow on Twitter named Jamel Bui. And he described an experience in which he paid for an Uber taxi. And when the taxi driver arrived and saw him, he didn't want to stop. Uh, Jamel Bui is black. And he said, you know, he didn't want to stop until I actually yelled Uber at him. And Uber was very good. They refunded him the fare. You know, I don't know if the taxi driver was reprimanded. But it shows that in as much as these apps sort of remove some of that uncertainty, they can't take it away. If you're going to get profiled, you're going to get profiled. So I think there are kind of two elements there. One, it takes away the possibility that you're not going to want to take me somewhere because you I think I live in the outer boroughs or... You are discriminating against me on the basis of, you know, you think I'm going to rob you or I might commit some kind of random act of vandalism based on your profiling of me. And the second thing is, too, I think it gives a degree of safety for me. One of the things I like about some of these apps is you can actually share your location with someone. Uh So, you know, if you're getting into a cab late at night, I can actually send a text to somebody and say, hey, I'm in this cab and I'll be home shortly. And if I'm not home, let me know. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one of the things that these statistics said was that actually the areas with the most e-hailed rides were in Brooklyn and Queens. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of that made me think, well, maybe they were in areas where a lot of taxis don't go roaming. Yeah. And so I'm fortunate that where I live in Queens there, you can find a yellow cab, but you go slightly further out and there are almost none. Right. There are only sort of the black livery cars. And the outer boroughs have actually been where I've had one, the most success using these apps and, you know, found them really helpful because there was just not a yellow cab in sight. I mean, from what you're saying, it almost seems like even if some New Yorkers don't get e-hailing, having it here in the city is worthwhile in a completely different way because they're bringing cabs to underserved areas and maybe underserved people. I, I definitely think so. You know, I had I like talking to taxi drivers. Mm-hmm. And one of the first times I took Halo here, I asked the cab driver, well, when do you find this useful? And he said, well, really off peak when he's just sort of trawling the city and doesn't know where he might find a fare. This is a much more directed and less wasteful way of him getting a, you know, a guaranteed fare than just driving around hoping somebody will be looking for a cab. He said he doesn't use it during peak periods because then he can just you know, drive down Broadway or whatever and somebody's going to jump in. Stacey Marie, thank you so much for your time You're and welcome. for tweeting back at me. <laughs> Anytime, Anoush. So now we're going to go on a more environmentally friendly route. The number of U.S. cities with bike share programs is climbing. But did you know that each city has to make a key choice when it decides to bring bikes to its streets? They need to decide between either a dumb bike system or a dumb rack system. 
Our Dan Tucker took a ride around Hoboken, New Jersey, to try and understand why this little commuter town decided on one technology when just across the river, big old New York City decided on another for its city bike program. Social Bicycle's founder, Ryan Respecki, tells me there are two types of bike share. You can have a dumb bike with a smart rack. That's the city bike model, he says, where the tech and hardware are in the dock and kiosk, not on the bike. Or you can have a smart bike with a dumb rack, like Social Bicycle's. What we've done is put communications technology onto the bike. Each Social Bike has a cell connection, just like your smartphone. As you ride, the bike tracks your GPS location in real time. There's a U-lock on the bike, too, so a Social Bike can be locked to any rack or pole as long as it's in a certain area. And you can reserve a bike in advance from your office or apartment with a web browser or with a Social Bike smartphone app. So you select the bike on the hub, and you click Rent Bike, and then it'll book one of the bikes from this hub location. When you find the bike, you enter a four-digit pin on a keypad on what you might call the bike's brain, a solar-powered box underneath the seat that houses all the hardware and tech. After that, it's just one more step between you and the open road. Move the U-bar, put it in the holster, and you're ready to ride. Oh, this is actually working out great. Pretty smooth ride, just heading down the waterfront here in Hoboken. You get a fairly comfortable cruise on a social bike. It's pretty similar to a city bike. Both models have three gears, a bell, and a small basket. There's just one difference. Yeah, when you're riding the bike, you don't really notice that there's a computer underneath your butt. The biggest selling point in Respecki's pitch is the real-time GPS data social bikes generate. He says the information could help cities like Hoboken make smart decisions about where to place bike racks and where to build bike lanes. New York City bikes don't collect any GPS data, though it is in the works. Even then, the information won't be available in real time. But a spokesman for New York's transportation department says that technology isn't necessary for managing a successful bike share. But Respecki begs to differ. If a, a city bike goes missing, they have no idea where it is. Whereas if one of our bikes go missing, we can follow the GPS trail and, and hopefully recover it. So it's like a ball of string following every bike. Exactly. And, and like I can look, I can look in our system and say, this bike has been unlocked for over an hour. And I can uh, click in the web interface, see the rentals tab, see who has that bike, and see where that bike is right now. Real-time GPS also helps when it comes to redistributing bikes. In most bike shares, including New York's, bikes end up in popular spots and have to be trucked back to other docks. It's expensive and not exactly environmentally friendly. But Social Bikes has a solution. To guide the redistribution of bikes, we provide incentives. So if you lock up outside of a hub location, you can do so, but you're paying an extra charge and the next user to take that bike and bring it back to a hub that needs a bike gets a credit. So no trucks, just user-generated pedal power, thanks to that onboard computer that Respecki hopes will attract the attention of more cities down the line. And despite City Bike owning the market in New York City, he's not ruling out expanding across the river. Respecki says he'd love to see social bicycles in parts of the outer boroughs that City Bike has yet to reach. For WNYC, I'm Dan Tucker. Phew, all this riding around has made me tired. Thanks for listening, and please, as you rehydrate after our ride, pull out your phone and tell one person about what you heard today. Just send them to iTunes.com slash NewTechCity or straight to our website. It's NewTechCity.org. And as always, please tell me what you liked, what you didn't like about our new, new, new Tech City podcast on Facebook or Twitter. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and I'll see you next week.